bow in prayer together. The joy of the Lord is our strength. The peace of God is given into the hearts of all those who truly trust in you. To, for these things, Lord, joy and peace, we're so grateful. Jesus Christ came into the world to bring joy and peace to those that would believe. I thank you, Lord, that you've given us hearts to believe and that you've redeemed us. We thank you, Lord, for this day that we can have the joy of God in our hearts in spite of the grayness of the atmosphere outside. And we know that the one in whom we have placed our trust will continue to work in us to bring us to that place that he wants for each one of us. And we're so grateful. And as we study the life of Moses and of the Israelites who followed him, we're looking at God training a people to be his people, uh, raising up men and women to serve him and to uh, occupy the promised land and to provide the kingdom in which David would rule, who would be the, the symbol of the Messiah. We're thankful, Lord, that we can gather this morning as we have for your spirit who will teach us and we pray that in every class this morning, throughout our Sunday school and in the service which is taking place simultaneously, that uh, your will will be accomplished and your name will be lifted up. In the name of Christ, amen. If you'll turn to the 14th chapter of Exodus, I'd like to begin reading at verse 10. Exodus 14:10. And as Pharaoh drew near... The sons of Israel looked, and behold, the Egyptians were marching after them, and they became very frightened. So the sons of Israel cried out to the Lord. Then they said to Moses, Is it because there were no graves in Egypt that you have taken us away to die in the wilderness? Why have you dealt with us in this way, bringing us out of Egypt? Is this not the word that we spoke to you in Egypt, saying, Leave us alone, that we may serve the Egyptians? For it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness. But Moses said to the people, Do not fear. Stand by and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will accomplish for you today. For the Egyptians whom you have seen today, you will never see them again forever. The Lord will fight for you while you keep silent. It's got to be one of the great dramas of Scripture as we look at this particular scene. The Israelites have been moving rapidly, as rapidly as they could, with all these animals and the children and whatever they had with them. Scripture tells us that they were marching in martial array, as we read before, that they were organized, that they were moving according to companies, and they had clear direction in what they were doing. And as they come to this body of water, and we talked, uh, some members kept watching, and, and suddenly people began to appear, and they saw that the army of Egypt was on their heels. And they were struck with fear. They were not an army. They may have been marching in martial array, but they were not an army. They had few weapons amongst them. In fact, we have no idea if they had any weapons at all, other than maybe a club or you know, a sickle or a scythe or something, but, but, but no real weapons that we know of. And they knew that these onrushing chariots that were coming after them were not on a mission of peace, <laughs> that, that this was a war group that was coming after them. And, and, of course, they felt totally defenseless. No weapons, no knowledge of warfare, 
no, no military forces on their side facing the enemy. It's very interesting, as we read that passage this morning there in uh, verse 10, at the very end of the verse, it says, So the sons of Israel cried out to the Lord. They prayed to Yahweh. Good move. You know, it's, it's a great thing to do. It was the right thing to do. Unfortunately, they didn't follow it up with faith, though. Because as we read on in the next verse, they turned on Moses and they said, You're the one who got us in this predicament. <laughs> Oh, God, help us. You're at fault, Moses. I mean, oh, that just kind of, there's, there's an incongruity to that, I, I think. Uh, one does not, should not follow the, uh, the other. It's a great example of how not to pray. <laughs> you know, oh, God, help us out of this. By the way, you're responsible for this, you know, <laughs> as you turn to your spouse or your friend or your coworker or whoever uh, is involved with you in this. They were quick to blame Moses. It seems that they forgot that Moses hadn't taken them by the collar and drugged them out in the wilderness. They had followed him of their own free will. I mean, Moses couldn't compel them to come. He had said, all right, God is leading us, let's go, and they went. And yet they're blaming him for this whole situation. It's kind of interesting how quickly they forgot the horror of slavery that they had just left. A few days earlier, I think most of them would have agreed with Patrick Henry. Remember good old Pat? Patrick Henry who said, give me liberty or give me death. And I, I'm sure many of the Israelites would have echoed the same sentiment. Give me liberty or give me death. But now, as they're out in the wilderness there with a body of water behind them and an onrushing enemy army on the other side, they're not saying, give me liberty or giving me, give me death. They're saying, it's better to be a slave than to be in the grave. That's exactly what they're saying to Moses. Why didn't you just leave us there? It would have been better to serve the Egyptians than to die in this wilderness. And they referred back to their original words to Moses, way back at the beginning, when Moses first arrived there. Moses had gone to Pharaoh and said, um, let, why don't you let the Israelites go out into the uh, wilderness to worship the Lord? And Pharaoh said, aha, uh -huh. the people have so much time on their hands that they, they want to go out and worship, huh? Well, I'll just make them work harder. And at that time, they had said to Moses, why don't you just leave us alone and go away? Because you're just making everything worse here. We're having to work harder as a result of your words to Pharaoh. So they remind Moses of that. I told you so. Not, not a good phrase to use uh, when faith needs to be developed. In verse 13 of this passage, we discover something about the character of Moses. Moses is not shaken by this. Moses is not angered by this. At least there's nothing in the scripture to indicate that he was either angered or shaken by their accusations of him, or by the onrushing army, or by the overall dilemma that they seemed to be in. What we're discovering is this man Moses, who began his encounter with God at the burning bush, has come along in his knowledge of the Lord to the point where he knows he's got his feet on the solid rock. And he has a faith that is greater probably than collect the, the collective faith of all the other Israelites as this situation begins to develop. And, and we might ask, how in the world can he be so strong in the face of imminent disaster? 
It's easy for us to, to read about it and look back at it, you know, kind of Monday morning quarterback the whole thing. <clears throat> but uh, to have been there, we have to kind of think, how would the Israelites have thought? And what would the situation have appeared to be to us had we been in their place? And I think for the most part, even though we'd like to think maybe that had we been one of the Israelites, we would have thought differently or acted differently, but probably we wouldn't because they simply exhibited human nature. And of course, the answer to Moses' strength was in the fact that he knew his God. To me, that's one of the truly great truths of Scripture. Many of us as believers have weak faith because we really don't know God that well. I, I think it could be said that the relationship or, or that our, the strength of our faith is directly proportional to this, the knowledge that we have of God. The greater is our knowledge of God, the greater is our faith. Now, God gives us faith as a gift, but at the same time, He generally doesn't just stick something into a vacuum. He works with what we are allowing Him to do within us and the level to which we are growing uh, in our relationship to Him. And so I think if we desire greater faith, if we want to believe him better, that the, one of the ways to achieve that is to seek to know him better. And of course, primarily through the study of his word. It seems that there are Christians who feel that they should be able to just grow in God by just going to church on Sunday and hearing a message, maybe going to a Sunday school class, but having no exposure to God's Word in between, and, and maybe no personal study of it. And that simply uh, produces a very anemic Christian at best. In this particular passage in verses 13 and 14, we have one of the great proclamations of Scripture. The Word of God proclaimed by the man of God, Moses. And I've broken it into four phrases that I'd like to emphasize as we uh, look at this this morning. First of all, do not fear. Fear is a natural human reaction to situations that seem beyond our ability to deal with them, threatening situations. And, and, and often it's a momentary response, but sometimes it's a prolonged response, of course. But in, in this particular situation, what Moses is saying is, you don't need to fear. There's no grounds for fear in this particular situation. Because as we consider the situation and the remember who is our God, then what's to be afraid of? Look at what God did in Egypt. God controlled the elements of nature. God controlled uh, the, the Egyptian civilization, the Egyptian economy. What's the problem? with this particular situation that we face at this moment. Fear needs to be replaced with confidence in God. I think sometimes we have a tendency to develop fear because we think in some way that we are responsible for our predicament and that it isn't a predicament that God led us into specifically or directly, and therefore because we had our hand in it, that maybe we've got reason to fear because God's going to let us just hang out to dry because we didn't really follow him in this situation. I, you know, I've thought that way myself from time to time, and I, I have to keep reminding myself that 
When God saved me, when God saved you, the scripture tells us that you and I were chosen from before the foundation of the world. And we have to always remind ourselves that God knew what type of person we were and who we would be and what we would do. And he knew our life from the moment of our birth to the last hour that we draw breath on this planet. He knew what our life would be like. And therefore, he chose us anyway. <laughs> he, he chose us knowing all of these things. Therefore, he never leaves us nor forsakes us, even if it is a predicament we've gotten ourselves into because we had not been obedient in a particular thing. It, it may require a, a quick uh, a prayer of repentance, uh, that's for sure. Uh, but in this situation, the Israelites are not responsible for getting themselves into this, even though they're blaming Moses for it. But they have not done evil and thus gotten themselves into this predicament. And so they had every reason in the world to trust God. But of course, they are very immature in their faith. I'd like to read from Isaiah chapter 41, beginning at verse 10. This, of course, is God encouraging Israel at a later date through the prophet Isaiah. Do not fear, for I am with you. Do not anxiously look about you, for I am your God. I will strengthen you, surely I will help you. Surely I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. Behold, all those who are angered at you will be, will be shamed and dishonored. Those who contend with you will be as nothing and will perish. You will seek those who quarrel with you, but will not find them. Those who war with you will be as nothing and non-existent. For I am the Lord your God, who upholds your right hand, who says to you, Do not fear, I will help you. And I am firmly of the belief that this type of statement that we read in Scripture applies to all of God's people from the beginning of time to the very end of this age. That it applies to us as it, much as it applied to Israel back in the 8th century when Isaiah made this proclamation. So Moses is trying to teach them this truth in the a 15th century, and Isaiah again teaches them again in the 8th century, and of course it comes again through later prophets. And then of course Jesus himself uh, tells us that he brings peace. My peace I give to you. And of course it's easy to think about peace and to quote, have peace when everything is peaceful. You know, you're sitting in a nice warm room, sipping a, a cup of coffee and, and listening to Christmas music and your family's around you and all is well. It's easy to be at peace, right? <laughs> but what if things turn sour quickly? There is sudden illness, there's loss of job, there's, you know, whatever can happen. I mean, this country could go down the tubes quickly economically, let's just say, for one thing. And we could all be back in the Great Depression or worse, all over again. That's when, of course, we need to remember he says, do not fear, because I'm with you there too. I mean, Israel faced a situation that in the flesh, there was no answer, because they could not flee, continue to flee in the direction they had been heading, because there's a big body of water there, and on the other side is the army of the enemy. So they're sandwiched in. 
And from the human point of view, there was no answer. But Moses says, do not fear. Then he goes on to say, stand by and see the salvation of the Lord. Take your stand in firm faith in God and watch him deliver you. We, we can carry these things to extremes. I, I've had friends who have said, well, we're supposed to pray, but then we must always put feet to our prayers. And of course, I understand what he's saying, but sometimes that can be pushed to an extreme. There is a moment when we're to pray and be quiet and do nothing because God is at work. Of course, that can be taken to an extreme too, right? <laughs> oh God, I need this job. Please send it to me while I sit in my house, watch TV and do nothing to, to find one, you know. We have to strike the appropriate uh, balance here. But in this situation, God is telling them through Moses, stop Turn your eyes to heaven and watch what God will do because you can't do anything. You have no weapons. You have no ability. You have no resources. You have no strategy. <clears throat> there is no answer in the flesh. So watch and see what I will do. And I think it's really important to note God does not deliver halfway. It really bothers me and probably many of you too in certain circles in Christianity. They, they want all these signs and wonders. And, you know, if a certain thing happens halfway, they consider that to be a great miracle of God. But God doesn't do things halfway, you know. Uh, when Jesus healed in the New Testament, he healed, right? The person got up and leaped and jumped and ran around. He didn't kind of hobble around, kind of, you know, all crippled up, but at least on his feet, you know. Uh, isn't the way God works. He doesn't do a halfway job. He, he didn't subject Egypt to these plagues for those several weeks to then deliver Israel to take them out and wipe them out in the wilderness. I mean, there's, there's just no logic to that at all. They weren't thinking, of course, logically at this moment. In attacking Moses, what the Israelites were really doing, and this sometimes is, is a thought that we need to analyze ourselves, Sometimes it may be when we're turning blame on someone else that what we're really doing is challenging God. Because that's exactly what they're doing here. When they're blaming Moses, they're really saying, I don't think God can deliver us or that God will deliver us. God has brought us out here just to kill us in the wilderness. I, I think they truly believe that. They were challenging God's integrity and his ability. God's purpose is always to fulfill his promise. Whatever his promises are, God's purpose is to always fulfill them. And of course, I think most of us have come to realize that his abilities to do so are unlimited. There are many passages in scripture that underscore this. I'd just like to read a couple of verses from Psalm 68 which again reaffirms who God is on a personal level. In, in Psalm 68, verse 19, we read, Blessed be the Lord who daily, daily bears our burdens. Not just in the spectacular moment, you know, with your back to the wall and the enemy are like a raging force in front of you. Not just then. But daily bears our burdens. The God who is our salvation. God is to us a God of what? Deliverances. 
And to God the Lord belong escapes from death. Surely God will shatter the head of his enemies, the hairy crown of him who goes on in his guilty deeds. Our God is a God of deliverances. He's a God who delivers us daily. He bears our burdens daily. I, I think the hard part for most of us is in the doing of our daily deeds to constantly be reminding ourselves of the fact that God is with us and that I can do this in his strength. Moses goes on to say, you shall never see these Egyptians again forever. God knew what was happening because God had generated this particular plan that was in operation. The attacking Egyptian army was going to be obliterated to the glory of God. They represented the evil system of this world. And God's people, as weak in faith as they were, as much bellyaching as they did, were nevertheless God's people. And they represented his work here on earth. And so God was going to preserve them, and he was going to totally annihilate the evil one. I won't turn to it, but let me just quote to you Second uh, Peter 2.9, which says, The Lord knows how to rescue the godly from temptation. Okay, but on the other side of the coin, and to keep the unrighteous under punishment for the day of judgment. There are two sides to the coin. God keeps the righteous, but he also keeps the unrighteous to the, under punishment to the day of judgment. And just as surely as we will be delivered into the kingdom of God, as surely will they be delivered to destruction. And so what we're looking at is the Egyptians, here they are coming on in all their shining armor. Their chariots and their, their strong steeds are rushing forward, a mighty army. Yet as surely as God was going to deliver Israel, so surely was that army going to be absolutely annihilated. Not because God loves death, but because God hates evil. He preserves his people unto eternal life. And conversely, he reserves the vile to eternal damnation. That's a message that many churches don't want to preach anymore today. They want to preach about hell. They want to talk about damnation because it's not sophisticated. It doesn't fit our politically correct society. As we know today, there is no real right and no real wrong. It's all a matter of perspective, which of course guts human society and destroys civilization. But what is interesting here is God is saying through Moses that these Egyptians that you're looking at right now, you not only will not ever see them again physically, you will never see them again spiritually. I mean, they're gone. They'll be totally gone from your life. And then finally, why should they not fear? Why should they stand by? Because the Lord will fight for you. The Lord will fight for you. Therefore, what? Be still. <laughs> be quiet in mouth and soul. They really needed to be quiet in mouth because they were always bellyaching and blaming somebody. And to put it in modern vernacular, what Moses is saying is shut up and sit still and trust God. See what he'll do. Does Moses really know what God's going to do? No. <laughs> 
But he knows God's going to do something. Let me read from the 46th Psalm. Psalm 46, verse 10. Cease striving and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our stronghold, our mighty fortress. Cease striving and know that I am God. Be still and know that I am God. I mean, Israel was just a buzz with accusations and fear. And I mean, it was just getting to be a general beehive of activity of, of fear and, and trembling and wishing they were back in Egypt doing their job where they wouldn't be threatened. And Moses just has to tell them, sit down, shut up, and see what God is going to do. What's interesting is that this is repeated several times in history. For example, as you'll notice on your outlines, uh, 700 years later, the nation of Judah, who was being led at that time, or which was being led at the time by a king by the name of Jehoshaphat, was facing a similar overwhelming situation. The enemy was coming like a flood, and uh, they had no strength that seemed to resist. And, and God says almost exactly the same thing. Let me read the passage from 2 Chronicles chapter 20, beginning at verse 14. What this does, of course, is helps us to see that although the scenario may be different, the God is, that God is the same. Verse 14. Then in the midst of the assembly, the Spirit of the Lord came upon Jahaziel, the son of Zechariah, the son of Benaiah, the son of Jael, the son of Madaniah, the Levite of the sons of Asaph. And he said, Listen, all Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem and King Jehoshaphat. Thus says the Lord to you, Do not fear or be dismayed because of this great multitude, for the battle is not yours but God's. Tomorrow go down against them. Behold, they will come up by the ascent of Ziz, and you will find them at the end of the valley in front of the wilderness of Jeruel. Um, the ascent of Ziz was um, to the north of En Gedi, which is about halfway down the west coast of the Dead Sea. And so apparently they had come across, maybe where the Lysan Peninsula sticks out, in, or did stick out in the Dead Sea. They had come across there and were coming north up and probably had passed the entrance into En Gedi. And were going to go up towards Tekoa and, and Bethlehem and, and Hebron up this ascent of, of Ziz. And so that's where they were to go meet them. You need not fight in this battle. Station yourselves, stand and see the salvation of the Lord on your behalf, O Judah and Jerusalem. Do not fear or be dismayed. Tomorrow go out to face them, for the Lord is with you. And Jehoshaphat bowed his head with his face to the ground, and all Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem fell down before the Lord, worshiping the Lord. And the Levites, from the sons of the Kohathites, and from the sons of the Korahites stood up to praise the Lord God of Israel with a very loud voice. All they had to do was go out there and stand and watch. God isn't saying you even have to go fight. <laughs> I'm going to do it for you. As this horde of Moabites and Ammonites and others were, were coming up this ravine, God would fight for Israel. God always fights for his people. If you want anybody on your side that's going to give you success, you know, God would be the one. Uh, in the flesh, Israel didn't stand a chance. I mean, you know, if, if 
who is it? The Greek, uh, the guy who does all the takes makes book, or is he still alive? I can't remember. There was some bookmaker it used to be pretty famous. You heard about him in the papers every once in a while, Jimmy the Greek or somebody. wasn't Zorba, <laughs> but anyway, uh, <laughs> he would uh, you know give bets on things. I guess that that others wouldn't do. If, if he were making book here, he wouldn't give Israel much chance, I don't think. Because they were in a no-win situation. Because it, the Egyptian army was one of the strongest armies in the world at that time. But the battle wasn't going to be a fleshly battle. I mean, it would have its, its it would be worked out in the flesh, but that wasn't where the real fight was. I mean, if you could look behind the scene, what you would see here is the house of hell pitted against the hosts of heaven. If you could kind of do a, what's that guy's name who's written all those books about uh, Peretti. If you could take a Peretti view of this thing, you know, and, and could kind of get the eyes of Elisha's servant and, and see, you know, the, the scene behind, you'd see the hosts of hell and the hosts of heaven coming together in a great collision here. And it wasn't just the army of Egypt against the defenseless Israelites, Satan. Satan is the driving force here behind Pharaoh and his army. And so we're talking about spiritual warfare here. And again, as uh, we've noted in earlier passages, we constantly, I think, need to be reminded that every, every aspect of our lives has a spiritual component to it. And that we are in spiritual warfare all the time. Sometimes it's when you first get up in the morning, you know, and whammy, you have a confrontation with somebody right in your own house. You know, there, there's a spiritual warfare right going on right away. You know, Satan's no gentleman. He doesn't wait for you to get all prayed up and, you know, and read your Bible and got everything going for the day. I mean, he hits you while you're still half asleep before you even had your first cup of coffee, you know. He's really a dirty guy. And wham, and try to tear, trying to tear us down. After Israel would later conquer the promised land. Joshua would, in his writings, clearly point out the spiritual nature of the conquest and of the battle. I'd like to read some, some of what Joshua said in the 23rd chapter of the book of Joshua. Joshua chapter 23, verse 1. Now it came about after many days, when the Lord had given rest to Israel, from all their enemies on every side, and Joshua was old and advanced in years, that Joshua called for all Israel, for their elders and their heads, their judges and their officers, and said to them, I am old and advanced in years. You have seen all that the Lord your God has done to all these nations because of you. For the Lord your God is he who has been fighting for you. See, I have apportioned to you these nations which remain as an inheritance for your tribes, with all the nations which I have cut off from the Jordan even to the great sea toward the setting of the sun. And the Lord your God, he shall thrust them out before you and drive them from before you. And you shall possess their land, just as the Lord your God promised you. Be very firm then to keep and to do all that is written in the book of the law of Moses, so that you may not turn aside from it to the right hand or to the left, in order that you may not associate with these nations, these which remain among you, or 
mention the name of their gods or make anyone swear by them or serve them or bow down to them. But you are to cling to the Lord your God as you have done to this day. For the Lord has driven out great and strong nations from before you. And as for you, no man has stood before you to this day. One of your men puts to flight a thousand, for the Lord your God is he who fights for you, just as he promised you. So take diligent heed to yourselves to love the Lord your God. For if you ever go back and cling to the rest of these nations, these which remain among you, and intermarry with them, so that you associate with them and they with you, know with certainty that the Lord your God will not continue to drive out these nations from before you. But they shall be a snare and a trap to you, and a whip to your sides and thorns in your eyes, until you perish from off this land which the Lord your God has given you. He made it very, very clear that Israel had not acquired the promised land by the might of their armed forces. It was not because Joshua was a brilliant leader of men. Uh, it was not because he was a knight in shining armor, as later medieval Europeans would portray him. It was because God had driven out these nations. God had destroyed them. I mean, who was Israel? Even after they had wandered for 40 years in the wilderness and, and had raised up a new uh, generation of, of men, and, and certainly it had some military training and had acquired some weaponry and so forth. Still, who were they to, to face the, the armed might of the Canaanites, who were a warlike people? It was because God gave them the victory, and, and that's what Joshua is saying. You didn't really win it by your own strength. You won it because God has given it to you. Therefore, you must serve him, because if you don't, he's going to give it back to them, in effect, and you're going to be out on your ear. We study these stories from the Old Testament, and it's easy for us to study them and to isolate them as merely stories from the Old Testament and to not relate them to our lives and to recognize that these truths which are here are, are for our edification and for our strength, for the enhancement of our faith to help us to recognize that God, Jesus said, I am the you know, same yesterday, today, and forever, so God is the same. The, the God of Israel, the God of Joshua, the God of Moses is the same God whom we serve. He may not be leading us with a, with a pillar of fire by night in effect, but he's leading us just as really, and he will defend us just as really. These Old Testament truths, I think, are made even further applicable to us as we review New Testament reinforcements of them. We're all, of course, familiar with uh, the sixth chapter of Ephesians, where we're told to put on the whole armor of God. And, and the reason is given there. Why should we do this? I mean, why should we spiritually equip ourselves with the study of the Word and prayer and fellowship and all of these things? Why should we do this? Well, we're, Paul tells us, because our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but what? Against spiritual forces of wickedness. And he's not making this, he's not categorizing this and saying, well, when you're trying to preach the gospel, you're dealing with spiritual forces of weakness, but over at work and you have a problem, that's just an interpersonal conflict. No, it's all spiritual warfare, wherever it might be. In the home, at work, at school, at church, in recreation, at camp, when everybody's praising God. Still, spiritual warfare is going on. A couple of other passages there. I, I'm sure you're familiar with them, but I think it's good to remind ourselves of 
what God is saying relative to this in 2 Corinthians uh, chapter 10. We have another very specific statement in verses 3 to 5 where Paul tells us that for though we walk in the flesh, we do not war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but divinely powerful for the destruction of fortresses. We are destroying speculation and every lofty thing raised up against the knowledge of God. We are taking every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. If there is ever a time in human history, at least as far as, let, let me further qualify that, if there has ever been a time in American history where this has been needed to, to be followed, it's today. Because evil speculations are going on everywhere, and all kinds of spiritism has creeped into this, quote, Christian society. And we believe, many people believe, so many things. I mean, we're becoming more spiritually oriented as a people, unfortunately, spiritually oriented towards deceiving beings. In 1 John chapter 4, verse 1, Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God, because many false prophets have gone out into the world. By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. And this is the spirit of Antichrist, of which you have heard that it is coming, is coming and now is already in the world. You are from God, little children, and over, have overcome them, because greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. They are from the world. Therefore, they speak as from the world, and the world listens to them. We are from God. He who knows God listens to us. He who is not from God does not listen to us. By this we know the spirit of truth, the spirit of error. You, you can take that sixth verse, and the next time you have a little encounter with one of those who is trying to convince you of Jehovah's Witness, Mormonism, or whatever it might be, just be reminded of this verse here. Because it says, we are from God. He who knows God listens to us. Hears our testimony and believes it because it testifies with their spirit that it is true. But he who is not from God doesn't listen to us. By this we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. You're going to be hit with the spirit of error from every side as we move even on towards the 21st century. Unless God brings a mighty sweeping revival across this land, we are going to continually degenerate, I believe, not into a, a nation just given over to crime, but into a nation that is spiritually oriented. But we'll be worshiping, or the nation, most of the people will be worshiping the spirits of darkness that parade as angels of light. We were listening this morning uh, briefly to Erwin Lutzer's message, and he's giving a series of messages on angels. And he was making a, a real point of this, this very same thing, that so much is being made about angels today, and that you should pray to your angel and seek your angel. And he says you never should ever do that, <laughs> because it's the angel of light, which is a demon parading around as an angel of God, that's going to hear you 
and is going to answer you. <laughs> because God's angels don't hear and answer prayers. That's not their job. We pray through Jesus. And I think it's really important that we remember that. Well, I'll just uh, read the next few verses, and then next week we'll... Let's see, do we still have class next week? Yeah. Next week we'll uh, look at them in more detail. But in Exodus 14, verse 15, Then the Lord said to Moses, Why are you crying out to me? Tell the sons of Israel to go forward. <laughs> Remember, forward is towards the water. And as for you, lift up your staff and stretch it out, stretch out your hand over the sea and divide it. The sons of Israel shall go through in the midst of the sea on dry land. Whew. Then, and, and then, as for me, behold, I will harden the hearts of the Egyptians so that they will go in after them. And I will be honored through Pharaoh and all his army, through his chariots and his horsemen. Then the Egyptians will know that I am the Lord when I am honored through Pharaoh, through his chariots and through his horsemen. And the angel of God, who had been going before the camp of Israel, moved and went behind them, and the pillar of cloud moved from before them and stood behind them. So it came about when the camp so it came between the camp of Egypt and the camp of Israel, and there was the cloud along with the darkness, yet it gave light at night. Thus the one did not come near the other all night. Go forward. I mean, it's a big body of water, but just go ahead. <laughs> just march right into it. But notice, God said, I will open it. And Moses obeyed. And Israel went through. So did Egypt. Or they tried. <laughs>